Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, in episode 35, we're going to discuss off-roading in two-wheel drive vans. We will talk about how hard it is, or actually how easy it is, to install a window. We're going to do a product review of the GoPro Hero 8 action camera and talk about an anti-gravity ghost town that's gone to the dogs. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for listening once again. Before we get started here, I have a strange offer for you. It's a long story, but I have a GoPro code that I can give to one person, and this code is good for 50% off any accessory, not cameras, any accessory at the GoPro store. It's pretty simple. But I only have one, so I can't just give the code out. So the first person who emails me at jeff at builttogo.com, that's built to go with two T's, not one, not three, two T's, I will give you the code. That's it. Very simple. Uh, and if anybody else is interested, since I'm asking people to email me, if you email me your home address, your home actual snail mail address, I will send you an official College of Curiosity Hook Waka Bang sticker. This is a Euro decal suitable for the outside of your vehicle, and it says, uh, it doesn't actually say anything. It doesn't have any words on it. It just has a question mark, a greater than symbol, and an exclamation point. And no, I am not trying to collect your email addresses or your home addresses. I just need it so I can send you the sticker. That's it. Anyway, so if you're interested in the GoPro code or the sticker, go ahead and send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. Okay, that said, what I really want to talk to you guys about is going off-roading in a two-wheel drive vehicle. Now, the idea to talk about this came from Brian Dunning, host of the very popular Skeptoid podcast. I highly recommend you check that out. It only costs you 10 minutes a week, and you'll be a smarter person for it. He is an avid off-roader. But he is also the kind of person who studies things. So he knows a lot about off-roading. And one of the things that bugs him is that people will often say that, oh, you can't go off-roading if you don't have four-wheel drive. You need four-wheel drive to go off-roading. And while four-wheel drive is certainly helpful, it isn't actually near the top of the list of most important things for going off-roading. And that kind of led to me thinking about, hey, I've gone off-roading in my van why can't everyone? And I, I feel like maybe it's just that folks don't know that you can actually do quite a bit with a normal van. So let's talk about the realities of that, what you can feasibly do and what you actually shouldn't do. First off, you have to understand there's two reasons to go off-roading. One is because it's fun. A lot of people just want to head out there and push their vehicle to the limit and climb hills and go over bumps and stuff. That kind of off-road activity I do not recommend for your built-out camper van. Your camper van will take a beating, and I don't necessarily think you want it to. So if you just want to off-road for fun, you might want to actually get a different vehicle for that. But if you want to off-road to actually get someplace, like if there is a patch of unpaved kind of gnarly road between you and where you want to go, then I think you can consider it but there are some rules and some realities you have to take into account. The first rule, and again, yeah, they're rules, and I'm, I'm asking you to do what I say, not what I do, is you should never go alone. Off-roading is an inherently risky activity, and you should always go with someone else. 
and that someone else ideally will be in a different vehicle and ideally even more will be in a different vehicle that is super off-road capable. So if you have the choice of going out with somebody with a Jeep or a Land Rover or something like that, do that. But at the very least, travel with somebody else in your own vehicle. And there's basic reasons for this as you're heading outside civilization here. If you break down out there or you get stuck, you're going to be in a situation where you're going to want someone else with you to help you figure out how to get out of this problem that you're in. The good news is, is that you're in a camper van, right? So how stuck can you be? I mean, you're going to have water and food and a place to sleep and all that stuff with you. So you're actually better off than somebody who just did this in a Civic. Although maybe you're living in your Civic. I am not here to judge. That said, I often go out by myself. So again, do as I say, not as I do. The next part is to do research. Where are you going? What are the roads like? You can do things like go into Google Maps and do satellite view and trace the route, which I do all the time. But you have to understand that's just a snapshot in time. That doesn't mean that road is going to be like that when you travel on it. But it will give you some ideas, and it's useful, too, to look at a topographical map if you can, and that'll tell you grades and things like how steep things are. Stuff like that. Like, do you have to cross a river? You know, that's a good thing to know. I do not recommend that you ford rivers in your two-wheel drive camper van unless you have made modifications for that. That's a more advanced level off-roading, and we're just talking about getting you from point A to point B here. One of the best things you can do is to find find a, a Reddit forum or a subreddit dedicated to off-roading in that area. Just basically Google everything you can about that area and see what people's recent experiences have been. I've run into this in Death Valley where there are roads that, depending on the time of year, are open or are not, or sometimes they fall into disrepair and they have to be repaired. It changes all the time. So do that research. Make sure you understand where you're going. And you can't actually trust maps, GPS, or even Google Satellite because this stuff changes very quickly. Also, while you're researching that, research what to do if you get stuck. Now, if you're going to do this a lot, you probably want to actually bring some things to help you get unstuck. Now, you don't necessarily need to have a winch, although that's certainly a useful thing. But if you wanted to bring a come-along, which is kind of a manual winch that's not very expensive, and you can just toss it in the back, eh, that's not a bad idea. Or maybe some recovery plates, which are these... Well, there's many different kinds, but there are these plates that you can stick under the wheels that will help you get over soft spots or holes and things like that. We're not going to get into all that in this podcast, but just know that you should spend some time learning about this stuff, how not to get stuck and how to get out when you get stuck. Those are very important things to know before you venture off-road. But here's some other things that are more important than four-wheel drive for going off-road. The number one most important consideration when going off-road is clearance. That is, how much space is there between the bottom of your vehicle and what you're driving over. That is so much more important than four-wheel drive. And the reason is pretty simple. Your vehicle's weight is on four points on the ground, the four tires. If your vehicle's weight somehow ends up being on something else, like you hit a rock and it lifts your vehicle up a little bit, well, that's called being high-centered, and then your wheels are windmills. They're not going to make you go forward because they don't have any of the weight on them that gives them the traction that moves your vehicle forward. That's a bad situation. Now, there's ways to get out of it. I have been high-centered. I was high-centered in a Land Rover 
one of the most sophisticated four-wheel drive systems available on any vehicle and I high centered. It happens and you can get out of it, but you don't want it to happen. So if you know you have a, a low slung van, like I've got a Nissan NV200, I'm not having a whole lot of room under my van there. You have to take that into consideration when you're going off road, because that's, what's going to get you into trouble. Another thing to add into that is the state of your tires. Now, I made it to Aurora, Nevada, which is a ghost town. It's 20 miles on dirt roads. They're in very good condition because there's a mine nearby. But I did that on crappy tires. They were the wrong tires for the van. They were car tires. They were at the end of their life. They weren't bald, but they were getting there. And I took this trip knowing this, but I could have gotten, but if I were going to do this often, if I were going to spend a lot of time on dirt roads, I would actually try to get gnarlier tires. A two-wheel drive vehicle with knobby tires or AT tires, as they're called, all-terrain tires, will actually perform better in many circumstances than a four-wheel drive vehicle. Because if you don't have traction on your tires, the wheels are going to spin no matter how many of them are moving. So make sure you have decent tires. And when you're talking about tires, there's a trick you can do. When you go off-road, if you're going to go off-road for a long time, make sure you have an air compressor. Make sure you have a way to inflate your tires. Make sure you have a tire repair kit for punctures. They're 10 bucks. Go buy one. If you don't have a puncture repair kit in your van right now, go buy one. 10 bucks. It could save you. It's an important thing. But given that you have those two things, it is okay to air down your tires. You basically want to lower the air pressure in your tires so that your tires are softer and there's more tire touching the ground. You don't want to flatten your tires. You just want to make them maybe half the pressure of their maximum. Down to 20, 25 PSI maybe. This is going to make your ride off-road much better and you're going to be much more secure. But, of course, when you get back on the road, you're going to want to reinflate those. That's what the air compressor's for. And it can take some time. So I wouldn't do this for, say, 300 feet of dirt road. But if I was going to go off-road for 20 miles or maybe for a, a whole weekend, yeah, I would air down my tires. It really makes an enormous difference. Another thing to consider is this thing called articulation. This is how much travel there is vertically on your wheels. The more the better, because this will allow the wheel to maintain contact with the ground no matter how rough the road is. The best off-road vehicles have modified suspensions that increase articulation. Vans, cargo vans, don't have a lot of articulation out of the box because they're meant for driving on pavement and it's just not that important. So that's just something to know. If you wanted to modify your two-wheel drive van to do more off-road stuff, you could get modifications that would increase articulation. But that's mostly true for rear-wheel drive vehicles. Here's the thing. Rear-wheel drive vehicles are going to be better off-road than front-wheel drive vehicles in many cases. And it's for a bunch of reasons. But one of the reasons is that the suspension in front-wheel drive vans is such that in between the back wheels, there is this bar. That bar is low to the ground, and the only way to raise it is to get bigger tires. You can't do any other suspension modification other than something really radical, like removing it, which I don't think too many people are going to do. Rear-wheel drive vehicles don't have that problem. They have a much more modifiable suspension. And let's talk about another difference between front-wheel drive and rear-wheel drive. 
While front-wheel drive is more efficient and better in snow, for example, it can be a drawback off-road, and this is why, and you have to kind of do a little physics experiment in your head for this. When your vehicle's flat on the ground, most of the weight of the vehicle is over the front wheels because that's where the engine is. Now, I know you could have a really heavy camper build in the back, and that could change that, but just bear with me here. Most of the time, that makes front-wheel drive an advantage, except when you're going uphill and the ground moves like it's got snow on it or it has gravel on it or something like that. In that case, when the van tilts uphill, the center of gravity shifts more towards the back wheels. And then suddenly the front wheels, which have all the power, don't have the weight on them anymore. It's the back wheels that have the weight. And because those back wheels are being dragged, the front wheels will tend to dig in and your van will slip more. You can turn off traction control and that might help with this situation, but there's actually a very simple way to deal with this if it ever happens to you. And that is go up the hill in reverse. If you go up into the hill in reverse, all the weight is on the drive wheels. Now again, rear wheel drive people don't have this problem. This is a front wheel drive vehicle problem. A uh, good trick to know is that if you can't get up a hill, going forward, go up in reverse. And of course, you should have a spotter and know how to use your mirrors and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so that's all the mechanics of it. Now, what kind of roads should you consider driving on? Well, I'm going to tell you to avoid mud altogether. If it's muddy, don't go. Mud is the hardest thing to deal with, and that's the situation where four-wheel drive is really going to be kind of essential. If you're in the desert southwest and it's dry, no problem. But if you're in the northeast and it has rained for three days and you're going up through some logging trail, yeah, you're going to get stuck in a two-wheel drive vehicle very easily. Four-wheel drive vehicles get stuck in the mud too. Mud is the hardest thing to overcome, so just don't do it with mud. And also, know when to stop. Driving into Aurora, Nevada's ghost town, I got to the spot I wanted to go, and I would have explored more. But I looked at the road conditions and realized, no, this isn't worth the risk. The chances of me getting stuck increased dramatically if I moved forward from the spot where I stopped. So I made the mature, responsible decision that this was as far as I was going to go. I'm disappointed by that. I had, at that moment, wished that I had the Land Rover that I used to own and that I would have driven all over the place there. Or I used to have a six-wheel drive amphibious ATV. That would have been awesome to have there. But I wasn't in that. I was in a Nissan NV200, and that was as far as I was going to go. You have to be willing to say, that's it. I've seen enough. Finally, the last thing you need is a plan for what to do when you get stuck. I'm not saying you should plan to get stuck. I'm saying that you should plan that you may get stuck. What are you going to do? If you're going off-road, chances of there being no cell phone service is pretty high. How are you going to deal with that? Where are you going to walk to? Where is the nearest point of civilization? I had all these questions answered when I went off-road in my van, and I really think you should too. All that said, though, I do encourage you to think about what you can do in your van. You can go more places than you might realize. Just because there's no pavement doesn't mean your van can't go there. You just have to know ahead of time of what your limits are and when to stop and have a plan for when things go wrong. Okay, tech talk. 
One of the things I see a lot is people are like, oh, should I get a van with windows or not? And it goes back and forth. And a lot of people get vans with windows and, and wish their van didn't have them and vice versa. So here's my approach to this. And if you know what you want, you can just skip this part. But I think you should get a van with no windows because there are a lot of advantages to having a van with no windows. It's easier to insulate. It's more stealth. It's more private. And you get to have exactly the windows you want if you want windows. Now think about this. If you get a van that has windows, in many cases those windows don't open. Or if they do open, there's no screens. That's not ideal for a camper. So what you should consider doing is putting in just the windows you want. And it's not hard. People are so afraid of cutting into their vans. And I get it, because you're cutting into your van. But it's actually pretty easy. So this is how you install a window. I'm actually going to give you the instructions in a podcast because it's that easy. Every window you buy is going to come with a template. And if it doesn't, you can just hold up the window to the side of the van and draw around it. That's the hole you need to cut. Now, how do you cut the hole? You first take a drill with a half inch drill bit. You need the hole to be bigger than the blade on your jigsaw. Drill out all the corners and then use the jigsaw to connect the corners. And then boom, the piece of metal will fall out. Then you cover the edges of your window in this th stuff called butyl tape, B-U-T-Y-L, butyl tape. It's just, it's kind of like putty. Wrap that around, stuff the windows in the hole, and then screw it tight. I mean, that's basically it. Obviously, you're going to want to do a little bit more research for your specific window, but that's really all there is to it. The butyl tape is essential because it conforms and deforms to every little nook and cranny and keeps water out. And you don't even have to silicone around this or anything if it's on the side of the van. If you do it on the roof of the van, then I do recommend you put some marine sealant around or something like that. There's a bunch of different roof-type sealants that you can use to keep water out. But on the side of the van, the butyl tape is almost always going to be enough. And that's it. And you can get portholes. You can get windows with screens. There's all kinds of windows that you can get. You can get exactly what you want. So, don't be afraid about putting a window in your van. It is easy to do. It's one of the easier things to do. Even though it's scary, even though you're cutting through the side of your van, you can do it. Okay, time for a product review. I picked up a GoPro Hero 8 not long ago. And I have to tell you folks, if you haven't looked at GoPros recently, this thing's pretty darn cool. This is not a paid endorsement. This is just something honest. I happen to really like this camera. If you've never used a GoPro before, they're meant to be very tough, very high quality cameras that do a few things really well. They do action shots really well. They're very good at stabilization and they also do time lapses really well. These are both things that for folks who take video of their trips can be useful. They're lousy for portrait photographs. They have really no zoom at all. So if there's a bird flying above, yeah, your GoPro isn't what you're going to want. But for these other things, they're very, very good. Now, I found that the settings of older GoPros are kind of finicky, and it's a little difficult to know exactly what your GoPro is doing. But the new Hero 8, the way they've done the interface on the screen makes this all much simpler. And boy, the thing really works well. Also, they've improved the sound, which is great, and they've got these mods that you can add. For example, there's a media mod, they call it, that 
your GoPro plugs into and that adds a front and a rear microphone. So if you're going to use this to narrate, you could talk while the camera was pointing forwards, which in the old days would have meant you were very muted. Now it's going to sound like you're in front of the camera. So all that is great. Here's the thing that really sold me on this thing. There's an experimental firmware that you can install, and it lets you do this crazy, it lets you do a lot of crazy things, but one of the crazy things it lets you do is have QR codes that line up with your settings. QR codes are those funny little squares with all those dots on it that you take a picture of and it usually opens a website. In the case of the GoPro, it will change all your settings. That means you can just have a piece of paper that you printed out in your van and just show whichever code you want to your GoPro and it will have all the settings you want. You can rapidly switch between, say, doing a time lapse to then doing an action shot or whatever without even touching the camera. I think that is pretty darn cool. So, hey, if you have need of an action camera, and here's the thing you may not have thought of, is that if you're going to do any kind of vlogging from inside your van, the lens is naturally super wide. So you'll be able to see the entire inside of your van with the GoPro rather than just, you know, basically you and your sink or something like that. If you are looking at one of these kind of cameras, I really like the GoPro Hero 8. It is my favorite of all the action cameras I've ever tried. And again, not a paid endorsement. I'm just saying it's a pretty cool thing. Also, it will do Facebook Live now. And there is a new GoPro Plus service that will allow you for, I think it's 50 bucks a year. I might be wrong about that. It will upload all your footage as you take it to the web. So it's like a cloud service just for your GoPro. Anyway, you can check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes, but I think you probably know where you can find a GoPro. So this place to visit is not a place you're going to be able to get to in your van. You can get to Gloucester, Massachusetts in your van, and then there's a parking area, which I'll have a link to in the show notes. And once you park, you must hike. It is, uh, you have a mountain bike, you could get there. But you cannot do this on, in your van, at least not legally. And you will walk through this forest. And the forest has these giant boulders in it. Now, this is in New England. So Gloucester, Massachusetts, obviously, is in New England. And the last ice age came down and pushed all these giant boulders all over the place. And then the ice melted. The boulders stayed. They're called glacial erratics. That's neither here nor there. What's weird about the ones here in this place that is known locally as Dogtown is that a man by the name of Charles Babson carved them with words. And this isn't explained there, so I'm going to explain it to you now. He did this because he was looking for a cure for gravity. His son had been killed in a plane crash, and he dedicated the rest of his life to overcoming the problem of gravity. And for some reason, he got it into his head to carve words into these boulders. They're called Babson's boulders, and you just find them out there in the woods. They're like those successories posters. They say things like, be on time, or never try, never win, or use your head. And they're just in the middle of these woods, and you're supposed to walk by them, and somehow, I, I don't actually know the connection between the sayings and to the anti-gravity stuff, but that's what he was all about. And now I, I promised you a ghost town in this story. Well, there is. If you follow the trail to the end, you go by this big quarry, you end up near the coast. 
And there was a town there founded in 1693. Yes, that's the 17th century. That is one year after the witch hysteria in Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, which was actually nearby. This town was founded in 1693. People lived there, and then they were driven off by pirates. They found it was an unsustainable place to live. So the men of the town ended up going off to fight the revolution and then pirates came and terrorized the women who were there with their dogs. The women fled and left the dogs behind, hence the name Dogtown. Apparently, they, the feral colony of dogs survived for many years. Now, what you're going to see when you get there is basically some overgrown cellar holes. Because, hey, it's been nearly 350 years at this point, so the houses are long gone. But you will actually get to an authentic ghost town, and it's a pretty cool hike. So, I will have links in the show notes. You can just Google Dogtown, Ghost Town, to find it, too. I, I kind of like the spot. I think it's an interesting piece of history. Those stones, those boulders are really weird to see. The quarry is cool. And it makes a nice day trip if you happen to be up in New England. I don't think there are a lot of stealth camping opportunities there because New England is extremely hard for that. But hey, you might get lucky and be able to park in the parking lot overnight. All right, resource recommendation. I, for whatever reason, have become really taken with this YouTube channel by this guy named Foresty Forest. Uh, his real name is Simon. He's a Canadian living in a Chevy Uplander, which is a van I never, ever would have thought of turning into a van life van. But he did, and he's got a really interesting build. It's a, it's a one-person build. He took out his passenger seat, and he's basically got his little lab in there, and he does these crazy things like take 3,000-mile-long fat bike trips or climb these 14,000-foot mountains in the Yukon. And anyway, I don't know why. I just really like his channel, and he's very open about how he solves problems living in the van and what it's like living in the van and all that kind of stuff. Now, he's Canadian. His situation may be different from yours if you're in the U.S., but it's still, it's van life. He's still sleeping in a vehicle. So check him out. I really like him. He's got 100 videos up right now. You can just Google Foresty Forest, just like it sounds, and you will find him. And uh, I find him very, very entertaining, and he seems just like a really nice guy. Q&A. Here's an interesting question that comes up a lot, and I've done a little bit of research on this. Obviously, driving drunk is illegal everywhere. Is it illegal to be in your vehicle while drunk? The answer is often yes. But what if your vehicle is also your home? So let's say you go to the bar and you have a few too many to drink, but you're a responsible adult and you're like, I'm not going to drive anywhere. I'm just going to go in my van, crawl into bed and sleep. Well, in some places, that's considered drunk driving. Operating a motor vehicle while intoxicated or whatever the local term is. The problem is that if you are drunk and you have control over a motor vehicle, that is a problem in many locales. It's one of these areas where the law and reality don't quite mesh. I mean, think about it. If you get drunk at home and you go to sleep in your bedroom and you put your keys on the dresser, you are also in control of a motor vehicle. There's nothing stopping you from getting up and driving away. Why is it any different if you're sleeping in the back of the vehicle? Well, apparently, legally, it is. So what is a strategy you can employ to prevent getting arrested. Well, if you don't have the keys, 
you are not actually in possession of that motor vehicle, and you might have to fight that in court. But here's a strategy I'm going to propose to you that if you're in this situation, it might prevent you from going to jail. If you are at a bar and you have had too much to drink and you are living in your van, leave your keys in the bar. Give them to the bartender, have them put them in the cash register. Hopefully they're friendly. You go out, sleep in the van, lock yourself in the van, and then in the morning or in the afternoon or whenever the bar opens, you can go and retrieve your keys. That way, if anything happens, the cops knock on your door, you can explain that to them. I think any reasonable police officer would consider that you are being as responsible as you can be. But again, it's always risky. The safest thing you can do is simply not drink. And it gets even worse than this, I'm afraid. In some locations, if you have alcohol that you can reach from the driver's seat, that's also citable. Or if you even have alcohol in your van at all, that's citable. In some cases, it's just when you have an open bottle of alcohol. But hey, that half bottle of wine that you started last night that's in the fridge, that might be illegal. RVers have been fighting these things for years. It varies by locale. Anyway, I just want to bring it up and have you consider it that if you are going to have alcohol and live in a van or travel in a van, you have to consider that that's a motor vehicle and you're subject to the same laws regarding alcohol and motor vehicles. I know it's not a great answer. I know it uh, prevents these impossible situations in some cases, but that's the reality. Uh, society is not set up to support people living in vans, and, uh, well, it looks like things are actually getting worse on that score. Okay, folks, thanks for listening to this episode 35. If for any reason you want to get a hold of me and suggest something or yell at me or complain or whatever the heck you want to get a hold of me for, you can always find me at builttogo.com. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag, a.k.a. Sir Mooj. And until next time, remember, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back to its old dimensions. Oliver Wendell Holmes.